Good morning, beloved. It is uh, good to welcome you here to the worship service on this uh, Sunday, November the 29th. It's certainly a different kind of a day for us. Uh, we are back to having uh, an empty sanctuary for this day, but hopefully that will only be for this one week. We're beginning our Christmas series, and it is the complement to what we started in uh, the spring season with Easter. We're looking at Christmas in the Old Testament and looking at various points in the Old Testament scriptures where God foreshadowed uh, the coming of the Messiah. So let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to meet together uh, electronically. And Lord, though it is not uh, quite the same as being together in person, nevertheless, Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have of opening your word together, studying and learning and growing in our faith. Father, we pray that as we look at this uh, series of Christmas in the Old Testament, and particularly as we look at this first message in the series, the beginning, uh, in the beginning, tragedy and hope, that Father, we can begin to see our world through your eyes. And though there has been great tragedy, uh, there is also great hope and you have provided for that in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, direct our thoughts now, help us to study your word and to apply it accurately. And we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. In Genesis chapter one and two, we have the account of creation. Genesis chapter one is sort of the summary version. And then chapter two focuses on some of the events of that sixth day and particularly the creation of man. At the end of that sixth day, the word tells us that God looked at his creation and everything was very good. Everything that Adam and Eve would need was all provided for them there in that beautiful garden that God had planted in the world, brand new world, which he had just created. God provided an opportunity for Adam and Eve to demonstrate obedience and thereby to enjoy God's blessing in his presence forever. Now, Satan, who had rebelled against God, encouraged them, that's Adam and Eve, to disobey God. And you remember the account, I'm sure, in Genesis chapter 3, where Satan, in the form of a serpent, appears before Eve and, and begins by casting doubt on what God said. Did God really say this? And she responded, and then Satan says, oh, but... Uh, you will not surely die. Satan just flat contradicts God. And then he says, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He's accusing God of keeping something good or something beneficial from them. And he's trying to encourage them to do this so that they too might be able to distinguish good and evil. And so Eve, the scripture tells us, saw that the food was good, or that the fruit was good for food, it was pleasant to the eye. She took and she ate and she gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve is the one who is deceived in this whole process. Adam chose to disobey. This was a clear and conscious choice on Adam's part. That's why it's always referred to as Adam's transgression. Uh, in the scriptures. Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, as 
the Lord God has come and has sought out Adam and Eve in their fallen condition. He inquires of them what's going on and asks an explanation. It says, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And that's exactly what happened. She was fooled. But Adam was not. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says this, reflecting on that very event. He says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So Adam knew what God had required of him and of his wife, and he did not intervene. He did not stop the process. In fact, he went ahead and he ate the fruit as well. What was the consequence of this deliberate rebellion? Well, God had spelled that out. He said that in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death is at its core uh, the idea of separation. There was a physical separation uh, right there uh, in just a few moments in Genesis chapter 3 after God uh, interrogated them a little bit. They were driven out of the garden. And so there was that physical separation away from the place that God had provided for them for their blessing and for their benefit. But there was also a spiritual separation as well. Prior to this time, and we really don't know how long after the seventh day, this temptation and rebellion took place. It probably was not terribly long. But that's conjecture, we really don't know. Scripture doesn't say that it was a long period of time or a short period, it just was afterwards. And uh, not only were they physically separated, but they were spiritually separated. Previously, they had walked with God in the garden, in the cool of the day. And now they're driven not only from the garden that God had made, but they're driven from God's presence. Now there is enmity between uh, them and their creator. Physical death came for Adam 930 years later when finally his soul was separated from his body. And the body, of course, then went to the ground and, and decayed. And uh, that was the, uh, the ultimate separation there. Spiritual death is something that all of us experience. Uh, but it does not need to be permanent. That's the very reason why God is involved in this provision of hope in the Old Testament. And right here at the very point where uh, we see the problem beginning to arise. You and I can't solve this problem. You, you can't go back and uneat that fruit. You can't go back and unrebel against what... Uh, had happened there, but in any case, God has provided the solution for that separation of ourselves from our Creator. It does not need to be permanent. And we see it foreshadowed right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God is speaking to the serpent on this occasion, and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the very first announcement of the gospel. 
It is planned by God, however, before even the world came into existence. It's announced here. And amazingly enough, God announces it first to the one who caused the rebellion, Satan himself. But this was not God's plan B. This was not something that caught God off guard. This was not God's desperate attempt to try to fix something that he hadn't anticipated or prepared for. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. It's in Christ Jesus. He is that one who God said would be the seed of the woman who would crush, literally that's what the word means there in Genesis 3.15, who will crush the head of the serpent. First Peter picks that same theme up, chapter 1, verse 18. Peter is talking about their salvation. He says, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This was a plan that God had in his mind and in his heart before he ever called the world into existence. That's an amazing thing, and I certainly don't pretend to understand it all. But I do know this, nothing happens in this world apart from God's knowledge and wisdom and permission. I may not understand why he does all that he does. I may not understand every small thing that he's doing or even every large thing that he's doing in my life or in your life today. But I know that God has a plan and purpose. And when it comes to salvation, even before Adam rebelled, God had a plan for the redemption of humanity. Salvation through that sacrificial, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross is not a plan which God desperately devised after Adam sinned in the garden. The omniscient God who created the universe and all things in it planned our salvation even before the beginning of the world. Now he put that plan into a into effect in a very unique way, a way that would bring the greatest glory to himself and would leave no possible room for boasting or bragging on the part of mankind. Notice in Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. 
Now, quite honestly, that's a, a kind of a unique way of expressing things. Because throughout the rest of Scripture, whenever we see those long genealogies that most of us look at and say, oh my goodness, who can keep track of all that? They're followed through from some father became the father of so-and-so, who then became the father of so-and-so, who then became the father of so-and-so. And it's all traced through the descent of the fathers. But here, God at the very beginning makes it clear that this is going to be something that comes from the seed of the woman. That's remarkable. That's just absolutely remarkable. The phrase indicates that this one who would crush the serpent would be human because he comes through the normal process of birth through the woman, but that he's going to be something more. With only the seed of the woman, there could be no life produced. You know, the egg by itself produces no life. So there's going to have to be something, something that happens in order for this prophecy, this particular prophecy to be fulfilled and for the Messiah who is being promised here to be able to come into existence. So in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we get another little insight into this. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, this is one of those Christmas card verses, reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this was a prophecy that God gave to Isaiah for Isaiah to give to a king named Ahaz. Ahaz was not the most godly king in uh, Israel's history or in Judah's history. And God, nevertheless, in his mercy, said that he was going to prevent some surrounding nations, including their brethren in the northern kingdom of Israel, from attacking Jerusalem and destroying it. And God very graciously condescended to get to allow Ahab to ask for a sign, to have a little encouragement that God was going to do this. Well, Ahab, or Ahaz, excuse me, decides that he's not going to ask for a sign, so God says that he will give one himself. And this is the sign, that a virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and call his name Emmanuel. The prophecy goes on to talk about a normal human child. He says, curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Usually a child in the uh, uh, ancient Near East, in the Hebrew culture, was weaned at about three years of age, and that was sort of considered to be the time when the child was able to choose, you know, good and evil, and really had the ability to kind of reason and think and understand and so forth. And the immediate fulfillment of this was in Ahaz, Ahaz's day. And in fact, if you go on reading uh, through Isaiah and read in Chronicles and other places of of uh, history, you discover that the, the kings that had been threatening Jerusalem uh, withdrew and the promise was fulfilled and it was taken care of. But it's in Matthew's gospel, chapter one, that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit, 
reaches back there to Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 and brings that verse and applies it to the life of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Listen to uh, Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 and following. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Pretty amazing stuff. We saw in Genesis chapter 3 that it would be through the seed of the woman. But, you know, I, I said that it's just through, through that seed, no life can be produced. But God, who is the author of life, who is the creator of life, is able to quicken that little seed inside of Mary and cause that seed to grow into Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Luke chapter 2 talks about that just a little bit. Let's turn our Bibles over here to Luke chapter 2, or excuse me, Luke chapter 1, uh, where uh, this is announced to, uh, to Mary, beginning in verse uh, 26 of chapter 1, it says, Now in the sixth month, an angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary, absolutely unique, was able through the power of Almighty God to bring forth a son, a son who was both fully human and fully divine the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one who is the fulfillment of that promise in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and the one who is the fulfillment of that promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
Think about his names for just a moment. He is called Emmanuel, and uh, Matthew's gospel tells us what that means. It means God with us. God had come down to this earth in human form to be with us, to share life with us. Not only did he share life with us, but he taught us about the Almighty. In John chapter 1, just turn a page or two over in your New Testament there to John chapter 1. John gives us the eternal perspective, if you will, of the incarnation of Jesus leaving heaven and coming here as a man. It says, for example, in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was and is the, the manifestation of Almighty God in human flesh. In verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. That's why Jesus said later in the Gospel of John to Philip, for example, in John chapter 14, Philip says, show us the Father, it'll be enough. Jesus says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father in human flesh. Absolutely amazing. The fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, God with us. But there's more. Notice that his name is called Jesus. It comes from the Hebrew word yesha, which means to save. Literally, his name means God saves. And that's what we needed. That's what mankind has needed ever since Adam rebelled in the garden. We have needed desperately to be saved, to be rescued from that, that place of condemnation and judgment to be restored to full fellowship with our Creator so that we might enjoy Him and be with Him forever. God has provided that one who would crush the head of the serpent, Satan, and thereby open the way of salvation. Beloved, our spiritual separation from God does not need to be permanent. God is this very day seeking the lost. Jesus said that the Son of Man came into this world to seek and to save that which was lost. That includes you, that includes me, that includes every single person ever born into this world. It's amazing when you think of what God has done for us, and yet so many people turn their backs on Him, and they don't want to hear about these things. But beloved, there's no way that you and I can face eternity apart from coming to Jesus Christ and asking for forgiveness of our sin, that he would cleanse us from unrighteousness, that he would make us his child. That's the whole reason he came into this world. When Adam sinned, God came into the garden and said, Adam, where are you? Beloved, God is still asking today, where are you? 
Not physically where you are. He knows where you are. He knew where Adam was in the garden. That's not the question. The question is, where are you spiritually? Where are you in relationship to Almighty God? Are you trying to hide and cover yourself with your own good works? That's what Adam and Eve tried to do with those fig leaves. They tried to hide their shame. They tried to hide their nakedness, but it didn't work. Are you trying to ignore your spiritual condition and pretend as though it doesn't exist? Are you trying to get to heaven based on your good works, thinking you're going to be able to cover up your sin and you're going to be able to get in okay anyway and not not be found out? Oh, beloved, that's just not the case. God is still seeking for those who will turn to him in simple faith and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. I believe that what he did on the cross in paying for the penalty of sin, he did for me. And God, I confess my need to you. I confess my sin. Forgive me, please, and make me your child. Beloved, it is that simple. That is exactly why Jesus Christ came into this earth, to seek and to save that which was lost. So in the beginning, yes, there was tragedy. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and all of humanity ever since has been a party to that same rebellion. But there is hope. We can be forgiven of our sin, we can be cleansed of our unrighteousness, we can be given the gift of eternal life. We can have the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior right now. We can have the joy of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God so that we can enjoy the peace and the comfort that he brings. So, beloved, where is it for you today? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has come into this world to save you from an eternity separated from God? Turn to him today and be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for this incredible picture, a full picture of both tragedy and hope. It puts for, before our eyes the, the situation of mankind. We are sinners. We have rebelled against you. There is no goodness in us. And we're living in a world that's fallen and broken and violent and all of those things. The, the consequences of sin are growing and growing and growing every day. So Father, we need to be saved. We need to be rescued from this dying world. And I pray, Father, that there will be those today who will look to Jesus Christ, God with us, the God who saves, and that they will turn to him and receive that gift of eternal life. Lord Jesus, thank you for such mercy. Thank you for such grace. And we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.